Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Regardless of your residency program year, the Resident Orthopedic Core Knowledge Platform developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons is right for you. Free to residents, ROC is an online learning program that covers 11 subspecialty areas with content that's being authored and curated by some of the leading names in orthopedics. And residents can access content for free at rock.aos.org. Get started today. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Wendell Cole, myself, and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE slash board review series. So we hope you all are enjoying it and that you are getting some value from this. And um, yeah, I mean, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. If you haven't, please leave us a review and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Nailed It Ortho. And uh, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Now, what about patients that have periprosthetic femur fractures? What is the treatment of choice for that? And really quick story, I remember I was on call as a second year and I thought the uh, the Vancouver classification for periprosthetic hip fractures I thought that was for every peri- every periprosthetic <laughs> fracture. So I remember when this came in, now I was in the fracture conference, and I was like, "Oh yeah, this is a Vancouver B, whatever it is." And they're like, "Oh, is it really now?" Like you know, like and it just went completely down the rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. So it is not for those that are listening. This is not the uh, the Vancouver classification that is for hips. I think this one is a Sioux, um, or there are, there are a couple of them actually. But anyway, so what's the treatment of choice for periprosthetic total knee arthroplasty femur fractures? Uh, the good news about periprosthetic total knee uh, fractures around the femur are is that uh, the femoral component is usually stable. Um, this is different from a hip fracture, like you said, with the Vancouver classification, where the stability of the femoral stem uh, is always called into question. For a total knee, um, it is usually a stable uh, distal femur block because the cement implant and bone interface prevents the fracture from traversing through the bone in that area and will cause the fracture to actually dissipate superior to it. So that's the good news. Uh, the bad news is what, what do you do? So if the implant is stable, you can either do uh, lateral locked plating of the distal femur uh, or an intramedullary nail. Uh, one thing you have to be cautious of, and this is less of an issue these days as it was 15 years ago, but if you, has, if you have a closed box implant, um, which they're not really made as much these days, you can't use an intramedullary nail. So identification of the femoral component is critical if you're planning on doing a retrograde nail. Um, if the implant is loose, uh, then you kind of run into a few problems because uh, you, if you're able to preserve the bone, fix it with a plate and screws, and then revise the femur, 
that would be ideal, um, but the not always done. So in highly comminuted fractures or osteoporotic bone or those with limited activity, um, some will just jump to a distal femur replacement and uh, kind of skip the whole open reduction internal fixation with lateral lock plating just to allow for immediate weight bearing and immediate allowance on range of motion. So implant stable, you want to fix it with a plate and screws or a retrograde nail. Um, implant loose, try a revision total knee with fixation of the fracture or straight to an endoprosthesis. Um, and so uh, let's see here. Now that we've kind of covered some of the periprosthetic fractures, I guess it would be the same for a tibia too. Um, the tibial component is very rarely loose with a proximal tibia fracture around a total knee. Those are pretty routinely treated with uh, plate and screws. Or if it is involved, then what you can do is convert the tibial component to a stemmed press fit diaphyseal tibia. And what that does is it provides kind of like a, a retro or a, excuse me, an anagrade nail fixation of the fracture with fixation distally in the diaphysis to keep the tibial component stable. Um, there's a study also out there uh, that you just highlighted as well yeah. uh, uh, from the Journal of Arthroplasty in 2014 by uh, Dr. Thompson, where uh, they're talking about periprosthetic supracondylar uh, femoral fractures about, above a total knee replacement. And they give a good guide for fixation uh, with a retrograde uh, intramedullary nail. So that would be a good kind of paper to pull up if you are kind of wondering, is this component compatible with a retrograde nail? Yeah, it was some um, of these papers that had like really good, like a chart with, you know, the sizes of the boxes of the different implants and the sizes of the nails. I remember our trauma guys were uh, were talking about that maybe a couple of years ago when I was on trauma and I was just looking up and trying to find that article, but I think that's what that article is there. Yeah. Yep. And so, um, so those are some of the fracture type complications. Let's say that um, you, everything looked great in the OR, which um, is something that you're just like, you're high-fiving yourself, but it seems that the patient, for whatever reason, maybe it was the, the tourniquet that was up or something else, and now they have a little bit of a loose flexion gap in the office. What are some of the symptoms they're going to complain about with a loose flexion gap? Yeah. And the way I think about it is, is like almost anything where the knee is bent and they're like going from a bent to a straight position is going to bother them. So trouble getting up from a chair, um, that'll clue you in towards a loose flexion gap. Patients that have problems going upstairs, um, you know, that's another thing. And then as well as this patients will complain of it, their knee just doesn't feel stable and they have pain. Those are some of the big things. But again, you really know the trouble getting up from a chair and then problems uh, going up and down stairs. Uh, and since we're just on this kind of, you know, we're talking about these different complications. Uh, what is femoral cam jump? A femoral cam jump is uh, an issue with only posterior stabilized knees because the posterior stabilized knees are the only ones that have a tibial polyethylene with a cam component to it. And basically what 
what happens with a posterior stabilized knee? And I understand that this is hard to conceptualize. So talk about it in your arthroplasty conference or in the OR the next time you're doing a total knee is um, there's a there's a cam on the femoral component and a post on the tibial component. And what helps with uh, the kind of range of motion and the natural kinematics of the knee with this sort of implant is the cam will rotate around the tibial post as the knee goes into further flexion. And the downside to it is if you are loose in flexion and the post is able to translate inferior to the cam, the cam will jump over the top of the tibial post and uh, it may not go back uh, unless they are loose in extension as well. And what that means is their knee is, their knee won't be able to uh, achieve full extension now. And uh, it may not be painful necessarily for the patients, but they'll notice that their knee felt like it dislocated and now they can't straighten their knee out. And uh, you can also see this if you over-release some of the uh, posterior structures like the popliteus or the anterior portion of the MCL. And uh, that's a much less common reason for it. Uh, the most common reason is when you have a loose flexion gap, this post will jump and usually they have to uh, have a revision total knee, most likely a uh, just a jump up in the poly size from a, what, like a nine to a 13 millimeter or something like that to prevent that stuff. So yeah. um, then uh, we hear about, I've never seen this uh, complication, but you hear people talk about it. It's called patella crunk, clunk, not crunk, <laughs> patella clunk <laughs> syndrome. Little John has patellar crunk. Syndrome. Yeah, that's little John right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what uh, patellar uh, clunk syndrome is, uh, at least, you know, as far as I've read it, I haven't seen this in clinic before, but it's almost just like what it says, like a kind of a clunk is here as the knee extends. And what this clunk is, is the scar tissue that's superior to the patella that's getting caught in the box. So this can be seen with uh, with PS knees or posterior stabilized knees because they have a little box, you know, designed for the implant. And that scar tissue uh, superior to the patella is getting caught in that box. And you can see it with arthroscopy. And actually, the treatment for this is, is uh, by doing um, a scar removal uh, via open versus arthroscopic. You know, typically you'll see the arthroscopic pictures and you can just get a shaver and remove all that excess scar tissue that's just superior to the patella. And you can actually prevent this by uh, doing a synovectomy at the time of the quad tendon. Um, uh, so doing a, a synovectomy at the time of surgery around the quad tendon. And, uh, you know, another thing to note that uh, that one of my attendings talks about is when you're doing your, your synovectomy, when you've done your, uh, your arthrotomy, you're going down and you're excising the synovium that actually any of you, every single time that your knife touches the, uh, touches the periosteum or touches the bone that increases your chance for getting heterotopic ossification. So to not do that, uh, that's just a quick fact in there that I'm, that I'm throwing in there. And I, I, I saw that somewhere when I was reading and preparing for this, I didn't include that, that in here. Cause I don't think it was really that high yield, but um, that's just something to know. This episode is sponsored by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. Are you an orthopedic resident? Then you need to know about ROCK. It's a new resident orthopedic core knowledge program developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. 
created for U.S. residency programs and free to residents, Rock covers 11 subspecialties and is filled with in-depth, comprehensive content and quizzes that have been authored and vetted by some of the leading experts in orthopedics. This all-in-one curriculum will give you the foundation and knowledge you need to become a successful board-certified orthopedic surgeon. And remember, access to Rock content is free to residents. Get started at rock.aaos.org. And so we somewhat talked about it, but what are some implant-related risk factors for patella clunk syndrome? The implant-related factors are going to be a, a wide and a tall uh, femoral box. And what it when the tall femoral box means is that in the A to P direction, it's it extends a good portion of the actual implant itself. Because if you think about it, in extension, the patella is articulating with the anterior flange of the total knee or the trochlear groove of the total knee. But as it goes into flexion, if you have a box that is tall, uh, the patella will tend to fall or settle in that box. And over time, as the patient goes from flexion to extension over and over again, if they're fairly active out playing tennis or going upstairs or just walking, that is going to develop that scar tissue ball superior to the patella because every single time the knee goes into flexion, the patella falls and settles in that uh, femoral uh, box there. And then also it tends to be the smaller and more disc shaped patellar components that are more uh, apt to uh, being affected by this while the oval shaped patellas do not because they have a more uh, medial to lateral um, distance, and they won't fall within the larger femoral boxes. So they're a little bit protected when it comes to this. Um, and then uh, if you're, uh, if you place the posterior stabilized knee in, in a patient and they come back to op- to come back to the office and they're reaching uh, 10 degrees of hyperextension, what sort of impingement can be seen? Yeah, so this is like again that, that kind of hyperextension impingement, and this is the impingement that you get on the anterior aspect of the post that's in that's kind of rubbing against the superior edge of the femoral box. So, I mean, if you just think about it, you know, and you have you know this this kind of hyperextension, you can get wear between that and that anterior post and superior edge of the femoral box, and um, and this can also be seen when you have flexion of the femoral component or excessive posterior tibial slope. I mean, for a lot of these joint things, you know, I just think in my head, well, what would make these two, you know, objects closer together? Uh, and, and that's what it would do. So if that box is brought a little bit more inferiorly or there's more posterior slope, uh, those are things that where the anterior post of the polyethylene insert, because we talked about it a couple episodes ago when we talked about the design and the implants of posterior stabilized, which is cruciate retaining. And we taught that the posterior stabilized have that post that engage with the box to prevent the uh, the posterior translation of the tibia. So when it's in full extension or hyperextension, that anterior post can rub up against the superior edge of the femoral box. Now, you know, we, we've done, you know, our total need, our patient loves it. We talked to them about all our different complications 
and and they are back in our clinic a year afterwards and they are saying oh doc everything was going great but uh, you know i just had this knee pain that hasn't gotten much better at all really and so what are some causes of knee pain after a total knee arthroplasty? And what are some things that you just should have on your differential diagnosis going in? And just so you know, those that are listening, we do have a prior episode with Dr. John Cody that goes over the workup of a painful total knee arthroplasty where we go more into depth about all these things. But anyways, what are some of the causes of uh, knee pain after total knee arthroplasty? Uh, the thing you want to rule out first is infection, um, because that's kind of the most devastating of all of them. And they're going to have global type pain. So you're going to start off with inflammatory markers and aspiration. And the numbers fluctuate every five years or so. So when a new consensus statement comes out, but basically, if it's over 3000 white blood cells, then it's positive for uh, an infection. And then and then we're getting into more of the kind of nuances with major and minor criteria and all of that stuff. But I don't we're not going to talk about that right now. Um, they can have other joint pain, uh, hip and low back pain uh, that kind of causes a change in their gait, which can lead to excess stress and wear on the tibia. Uh, you can have aseptic loosening, which is just radiolucent lines around your implant and cement mantle um, malalignment. So that's one that you're going to get a CT scan to assess the rotation of your femoral component. As the most likely culprit for that is internal rotation of the femoral component. Uh, you can have instability, which you're going to see on your physical exam, um, osteolysis from excessive polyethylene wear, and that can be seen in a knee that is not correctly balanced. So let's say they are more tight medially than laterally. That's going to put a lot of stress on that medial uh, polyethylene and cause uh, some osteolysis. Um, they can have a hypersensitivity reaction from nickel, which you're going to order a lymphocyte T-cell pro proliferation test because it's a type four hypersensitivity reaction. And then other things that are kind of unrelated to the total knee itself. If everything looks great, then they may have like a chronic regional pain syndrome uh, that needs more management from a pain specialist rather than yourself. So uh, things you yeah. want to rule out first are infection, um, aseptic loosening, and uh, osteolysis, as those are probably the most common causes of knee pain. And then you're looking at other stuff like uh, malalignment and uh, instability. So uh, when you are evaluating or you're talking to a patient about cemented versus press fit total knees is early loosening associated more with press fit or cemented yes yeah, so that's gonna be associated more with uh with press fit total knee arthroplasty or or non-cemented you know i guess to me it, it kind of makes sense it's like you know it's not cemented in it's more press fit if you don't get that good bony end growth uh or you know different things of that sort that that may happen that uh, that you can also, that loosening is more associated with, again, with these press fit, um, non cemented total knee arthroplasties. And when we're thinking of, you know, generally some causes of early versus late failure of a total knee arthroplasty, I guess what are in, in general, some of the things that are in our mind that we definitely want to think of that's more common with early 
uh, failure versus late failure of total knees? So early failure um, is going to be infection, malalignment, instability, and arthrofibrosis. Those are the things that are going to cause issues within the first few months and things that you want to um, detect early and treat early. So once again, infection, malalignment, instability, and arthrofibrosis. Late uh, causes of uh, failure tends to be polyethylene wear. We have good polys out there now, but they are not uh, perfect. And obviously, if you have somebody who's taking their knee through 18 holes of golf three times a week <laughs> over the course of 10 years, then they're probably going to fail at that time rather than somebody who is only ambulatory for the necessary things and they have a relatively sedentary lifestyle and everything else looks great according to them. So um, the late complication is most likely going to be polyethylene wear. And one quick thing about, um, it's just kind of a anecdote from one of my mentors who's been yeah. in practice for 20 years when we're talking about early implant loosening with cemented versus press fit. Every time we uh, I shouldn't say every time we cement, he says this, but at the time of cementation, that's the most rigid that cement is going to be. And so, uh, but like you said, with the press fit, you have to wait a while for that to really be a stable implant because of the bony ingrowth. So that's another way to remember that press fit total knees have early loosening versus cemented because when you cement a total knee in, you know, it's stable from the very beginning. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that uh, I, I didn't mention when we were talking about cementing technique, and I, I think it's important is that like, once you cement it and you have all the implants there, you at least try to wait until some of the, I, I know some attendings don't, or at least I've heard that through the grapevine, but some tendons don't wait until that cement at least hardens before you start to move the knee around and close and get on with the rest of the case. Uh, I guess in your experience, do you have most, have most people waited for the cement to dry a little bit more first before they've continued on with like moving and closing and getting the patient moving or as soon as it's like, it's in there, just go ahead and start closing. No, I actually, um, myself, when I do total knees on my own, um, here in fellowship, I do a few or quite a few actually um, with the attending in the next room over. And I hold axial uh, uh, compression on the knee. So I basically, I put the leg into full extension, put the foot on my chest and just lean into the leg for yeah. 10 minutes. Um, and during that 10 minutes is when uh, whoever's working with me, whether it's one of the uh, physician assistants or residents or um, whoever else is um, doing a two to three liter wash of the knee and injecting the soft tissues with local anesthetics. So um, the, we're still doing stuff during that time. It's not like I'm just sitting there with the wound wide open for 10 minutes. We're, we're still <laughs> cleaning the knee out and and getting other work done. But yeah, I, I usually wait about 10 minutes before uh, closing and all of that. Yeah. I think we mentioned a little earlier about the, the period. Yeah. I think we mentioned about the periarticular nerve blocks when we talked about like the AOS um, recommendations. I think that was one of them. I think we mentioned, yeah. I would, you just, it just made me think of that. 
Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you all are enjoying it as always. And please, again, please just tell two friends. Not one. I know this is a big ask, but if we could have each of you tell two people about the podcast, that would help us out a bunch. So uh, until next time.